I'm Hannah Young from the British Consulate General in New York, and welcome to Brits in the Big Apple, the podcast exploring the cultural connections between the UK and New York. Andrew Carnegie, born 1835, was a Scottish-American industrialist and philanthropist. Carnegie led the expansion of the American steel industry in the late 19th century and became one of the richest Americans in history. During the last 18 years of his life, he gave away around $350 million, roughly about 5.2 billion in today's money, and that was almost 90% of his fortune. In 1890, inspired by his new wife, Louise, who sang with the Oratorio Society of New York, Andrew Carnegie funded the construction of Carnegie Hall, which has undoubtedly set the international standard for musical excellence as the number one destination for the world's finest artists. Tchaikovsky played its opening night in 1891, and it has wowed with the best of the best ever since. Rumor has it that a pedestrian on the 57th Street in Manhattan stopped Yasha Heifetz, the famous violinist once, and asked, could you tell me how to get to Carnegie Hall? Yes, said Heifetz, practice. My guest today is Sir Clive Gillinson, Executive and Artistic Director at Carnegie Hall. Clive took up this post in 2005 and is responsible for developing the artistic concepts in its three halls, as well as overseeing the management of all aspects of the world-renowned venue. Clive also oversees the Ryle Music Institute, which uses the resources of Carnegie Hall to bring music education and community programmes to the people of New York and beyond. Sadly, due to the pandemic, Carnegie Hall missed an entire season for the first time in its 130-year history but we very much hope that Clive will transport us back to those halls momentarily as we anticipate its doors opening again. Clive, welcome to Brits and the Big Apple. Thank you very much, Hannah. Great to have the chance to talk to you. Clive, I wonder whether you could start by giving our audience a brief overview of your career journey, including whether there were any aha moments that led you to where you are today or, or a series of pivot points. Well, I'd say a series of mistakes. We <laughs> um, <laughs> um, can all relate to that. Yeah. Well, when I was at school, I had two subjects that I adored. Well, three subjects, um, which was mathematics, music and carpentry. And they all played a big part in the way my life evolved then. Um, but my mum was a phenomenal cellist. I mean, really one of the best cellists in the country. Um, but in those days, the men got all the jobs. So her view was... Mm that music was a very, very tough, you know, not a very nice profession. And I loved music at school. I played in the National Youth Orchestra of Great Britain. And I mean, I kind of knew music needed to be my life, but she persuaded me I should go to university to do mathematics uh, and do music as a hobby. And so I did, I went to Queen Mary College in London. And after a year, I realized this really wasn't for me and it had to be music because all I did there was playing music. <laughs> and, um, so I applied for and got into the Royal Academy of Music and, and spent four years there and got my recital diploma. And then coming out, well, even in the last year of the Royal Academy of Music, I was already doing some freelance work with the Philharmonia, with the London Symphony, with the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra. And then when I left, I decided I would audition for the LSO and for the Philharmonia because they were the two orchestras I loved working with. Um, there were no jobs, I thought there were no jobs going. And I auditioned for both of them. And the Philharmonia in fact, just then had somebody leaving and they offered me a job in the cello section. So I joined 
um, did Otto Klemperer's last Beethoven cycle, which was extraordinary, um, sitting next to my mum in the cello section, as it happened. Wow, <laughs> so, amazing, um, family you know, business. Was, yeah, I mean, really, you know, surprising and, you know, not exactly where I thought my career was heading. But, uh, and then the phone rang after three months and it was the LSO, somebody was just leaving. And did I want to join? And they offered me a job in the cello section there. So because the LSO was always the orchestra that seemed the most innovative, that was doing, you know, really interesting, unusual things, mm. it was always the one that had excited me the most. Mm. And so I said yes, which is the last thing you should ever do after three months to the job, <laughs> move to another one. But I did say yes. And that defined my life. Um, because I went there, I played there for 14 years. Um, and we played with Leonard Bernstein, um, you know, all mm. sorts of extraordinary people, Colin Davis, Abado, Previn. I mean, it was a fantastic time. Um, but then we moved into the Barbican. And as you know, that was a disaster. And the manager did not want to change anything because he thought nobody can let the LSO go. Uh, it, you know, the government will just have to give them more money. And I remember sitting in the cello section and we used to look out there because we were repeating concerts at 30% halls, 40% halls, utterly demoralizing. Mm -hmm. And so he was sacked and they tried to find a manager I mean, the orchestra was on the verge of bankruptcy. They tried to find a manager and they couldn't find anybody. So they thought they'd get a player to go in temporarily um, for three months whilst they looked for a real manager. And so I've no idea it was me, why it was me. It, it may have been because I also had an antique business at that time whilst I was also playing in the orchestra because I loved the, um, the carpentry, the restoration, all that work. And so we had a, an antique business in Hampstead. And so they probably thought I knew something about business, which I didn't. <laughs> and, and so they asked me if I'd go in for three months. And so I went in for three months. At the end of three months, they still couldn't find a real manager. And, and they offered me the job. And I said, well, no, because after three months, you've no idea if I'm the right person. And after three months, I've no idea if I want the job. I've never been interested in management. In fact, it's about the one thing I knew I did not want to do. Um, so I said, I'll do it for a year if you keep my job open in the cello section. And then by the end of a year, you'll know if you want me and I'll know if I want to do it. And so that's exactly what we did. In the end of the year, they hadn't found anybody and they offered me the job. So I ended up doing it for 21 years. And, you know, but I'd, and I was offered a number of other jobs in that time, but it never interested me um, because, you know, I loved the orchestra, I loved the LSO, it was my friends, it was my kind of musical family. And, but then the phone rang and it was Carnegie Hall. Was I interested in being on, you know, a list to be interviewed of people to be considered for the job? And I mean, where my kids and my wife at the time had all said, um, with every other job, they said, no, 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 you can't do this. They all said, well, Carnegie Hall, you can't say no, you have to go. So I went over there for an interview. And it was actually one of the things that I've always recommended to people, which is always assume you are never going to get a job when you go for an interview, because then you're more relaxed. Um, so, I, you know, I was relatively relaxed about it because I knew I wouldn't get it. I thought I was too old. Um, I'd never run a concert hall before. I was a foreigner, not a hope. Um, so I went there, had a fantastic day of interviews. I mean, you know, there's so many remarkable people there. And, you know, and I saw so many members of the board and had lunch with some, had dinner with some and breakfast with some and then was on a plane back home, um, knowing I hadn't got the job and that they'd be bound to take somebody from America. And... And then the phone went, I was on holiday in France 
And um, initially, because it was such a terrible line, I didn't know whether they were telling me I hadn't got it or I had got it. Um, <laughs> anyway, it transpired I had got it. So, you know, something I could never have dreamed of in a million years um, was running Carnegie Hall. I played there in 1970 with the LSO as a player. It was one of the very first dates I did was an American tour with Andre Previn. And then we'd been back on a number of occasions subsequently. Um, so, I mean, it, was, it wouldn't even have figured in my dreams um, because it couldn't possibly have happened. So every step really was something that was a fluke because after all, if I'd stayed in the Philharmonia, the Philharmonia did not have financial problems. I'd never have become a manager. And, you know, it was just chance that I became a manager, as I said, knowing I didn't want to do that. And then your chance to be, um, you know, pursued by Carnegie Hall and for that to work out. So I'm in the last place in the world I'd ever expected to be. Wow, that's an amazing career journey. And as you say, sort of series of moments where actually you could draw on previous experience but you're jumping into something new as well and you're taking a bit of a risk and they're taking a bit of a risk and I like your let's give it a three-month window and work out if we you know if we if we get on but uh it's great that it worked out and and I guess after 21 years at the LSO did it feel like a a big leap to come to New York or was it actually just something that felt very natural and moving across the pond was something that you and your family felt very comfortable doing we didn't feel uncomfortable about it. I mean, it was, I knew New York well. I'd set up an American foundation for the LSO many, many years before. So we used to fundraise here. Um, you know, we came on a regular basis. I'd set up an annual residency, in fact, for the LSO to come to Lincoln Center every year. And again, the reason for that was because we used to perform at Carnegie Hall and that was always where we wanted to perform. Um, but when I wanted to do this annual residency of three concerts, um, so you created some sort of a festival, um, Carnegie Hall wasn't willing to risk that. They were only willing to do two concerts. And so I said, well, in that case, I'm sorry, but I'll have to go and talk to Lincoln Center because I think you can only create a real journey with three concerts and do something meaningful that way. So Lincoln Center jumped at it, we went there, and then a number of years later, after we'd been going there, it was a great success. Carnegie Hall invited me in to talk and said, could you bring the residency here instead? And I said, no, because we offered it to you originally. You said no, so it's only right we should remain loyal to Lincoln Center because they did respond to it positively. And then when I left the LSO, I told the story to my successor. And I said, I won't be inviting you to Carnegie Hall, um, you know, for this reason. And I think you should stay loyal, at least to the person. I mean, if, you know, personally, mm. it's a different question. But, you know, the person who'd taken the risk for the LSO, you stay loyal to them. Mm. That's really interesting. And, and, and you've been at Carnegie Hall now for 16 years. Nearly 16 right? years. Yeah. Nearly 16 years. So does this feel very much your home now? It feels home feel completely, yeah. absolutely, and it has done for a long time. So, I mean, I did knew, know New York well because of, for lots of reasons, I mean, including the residency. Um, I mean, obviously the one thing I'd never done was fundraising, you know, on the scale you have to do it in America. So, you know, that's something, well, I mean, ironically, when I started at the LSO, when I went for three months into management, I said, I'll do it as long, on two conditions. One is I never have to fundraise, and the other is I never have to, never have to make speeches. So of course in New York, <laughs> that's half of what you're doing all the time. Both <laughs> um, but in the end, 
I realized that actually raising money is great fun. And the reason it is, is because you're never asking for money. The way to raise money is to share vision and, and relationships, create relationships. And, you know, then if somebody believes in something, they'll support it. If they don't believe in it, they won't. But you're not, you don't have to sell in that sense. If you can share the vision successfully, then you will create those relationships and people will support if they want to. So, you know, that was something that evolved. And so, I mean, the American culture is one I've really enjoyed. And, you know, I love working here. And what's great about working in a place where you've got to raise all the money is okay on one side it's very scary because if you you know if there's a recession or if there's a problem the money goes down and there's nothing you can do about it um you know you, you've got a challenge and you've got to make cuts in britain with public funding you are protected mm -hmm. to some extent mm -hmm. um but equally when people are giving their own money they expect something extraordinary then you know mm -hmm. it's no good going to somebody and asking for a, a million dollars or a few million dollars for something that's good um, because they won't be interested. They'll only be interested if it's something that's really extraordinary and that it blows them away and that they feel this is something that has to happen. So, I mean, it, you know, in a way, the American system puts the pressure on that you do things that actually really need to happen and that are special. Mm -hmm. and, and that's the environment one should always live in in the arts. Yes. And, and that's a really interesting point around, I wonder whether you create even more of a connection with, you know, your backers because they're invested in it in exactly the same way as you are, you know, and, and they're, they're seeing the vision, not just, you know, the individual pieces of music, they're buying into your overall strategy, you know, your direction of travel and, and you're right, it's a different business model to the way that the UK funds its, um, its arts and culture, but, I wonder if it creates even more of a connection with the community around it. It does. I mean, A, with your donors and B, with the community. Mm. Um, so, yes, it does. And what's interesting about the UK is most public funding bodies tend to be more worried about failure than they are excited about success. And so, you know, it's one of the challenges with an arts council is that very often they want something that's safe because somebody won't lose their job running the Arts Council if mm. there's no explosions. Um, you know, if, mm. if life is peaceful, they'll probably keep their job. But if you're in a public funding body and you back something extraordinary and it fails, then you're much more likely to lose your job. So, I mean, the irony about the UK is, I mean, the, the arts in the UK are extraordinarily successful, but I think they're not successful because of the funding system. They're almost successful despite it sometimes. Mm. It's really interesting thinking about how different funding systems can actually breed and drive innovation or stifle innovation. It'd be really interesting to know a bit more about how you're bringing innovation into your work in Carnegie Hall. Are you, are you looking at new and emerging artists as well as the, the traditional well-known names? Could you give us a sense of how you're bringing it into your work? Well, we've done a huge amount of things. I mean, we created these big festivals. Um, we do a big annual festival where we work with other cultural institutions in the city so that we're creating context around the music journey um, in visual arts, theatre, dance, film, and so on. So we've done that. We've created the National Youth Orchestra of America, the National Youth Jazz Orchestra of America. We've created massive, or expanded the education programs massively. So we now reach 
about 800,000 people a year, most of them kids, and many of them kids who wouldn't otherwise have the chance. So we've done a vast number of things that have completely transformed Carnegie Hall. And, you know, so innovation lies at every level, but the answer is yes. Um, we do look at young artists. We look at, um, you know, unknown composers. We, our explorations, when we look at the festivals and some of the things we do are across the whole spectrum of, you know, some of the big issues of our day. Uh, so, you know, we've really expanded in every way what Carnegie Hall represents and created different journeys for audiences that, you know, that really are great journeys of exploration and, and test people's willingness to explore. I mean, we want to stimulate exploration and that the arts should be part of everybody's ability to keep mm -hmm. growing. My, um, my, my father trained as a classical pianist um, at the Royal College and he didn't go on to, um, to, to, to take that into a professional capacity, but he, um, he did instill a love of the proms in me. And one of the, um, the things I enjoyed most was that, uh, certainly for a couple of seasons, um, the, the, the more traditional music would be placed against something a bit more new, modern, and actually it was a brilliant way of helping me listen to something that I would never have thought of spending the time listening to previously, but clearly by design, uh, you know, trying to bring new uh, insights into, you know, pairing them with existing music was a really powerful way of opening up new channels to, to the audience. So it sounds, sounds quite similar to the work that you're doing. Well, and that is something absolutely that I believe in and that we do. Some organizations believe that you put contemporary music into a separate category and, and you present it in that way. But I've always felt that putting it into a ghetto, it then means you're only talking to the people who love contemporary music or know they want to support contemporary music. If you put it into programs day in, day out, it means people you know, we'll always be willing to take a risk on something which at least is not going to take too long. Um, you know, because I remember Colin Davis once introducing a piece and saying, you know, saying all the different things about, you know, what were important about it. But he said, you know, but look, the fact is, if you hate it, I promise you, it doesn't last more than seven minutes. Unless <laughs> <laughs> um, um, so. it's smaller. Yeah. <laughs> right. But well, that's not likely to yeah. be something they haven't heard before. Um, but, but, you know, I'm talking really about very contemporary music, yeah. you know, and some people don't enjoy it and some people do, but some people get wonderful surprises and find they thought they hated it, but actually they love it. Mm. You're listening to Brits in the Big Apple, the podcast exploring the cultural connections between the UK and New York. And my guest today is Sir Clive Gillinson, Executive and Artistic Director at Carnegie Hall. Clive, I wanted to um, pivot to the pandemic. And as I mentioned in my intro, Carnegie Hall didn't host its typical season of music. Um, and I wanted to understand more what impact the pandemic has had on the organization and how you've managed to maintain a connection with artists and audiences through this very difficult period. Well, of course, it's been traumatic for everybody. Um, I mean, for artists who are without work for very long periods now, I mean, particularly young artists who really haven't got much in the way of resources behind them. So we've developed a lot of things like Live with Carnegie Hall, Learn with Carnegie Hall, which are usually about one hour programs, up to one hour of programming, where we look at some of the big issues of the day. I mean, whether it's, um, you know, the George Floyd death or whether it's Ruth Bader Ginsburg's death, 
Um, you know, we've looked at lots and lots of issues and explored them and, and always with a, a leading artist who's really keen to, to make the exploration and who then will record some music from their home. They'll bring in other people and other artists. But every one of these programs is about telling a story. And we had one recently, which I mean, everybody loved, which was um, Josh Avell wanted to do something. And, and it was something we were very keen to do, which was to work with doctors and nurses who play musical instruments. So we formed an orchestra of doctors and nurses who played and, you know, wow. we were able to tell the story about, you know, their life during COVID at the same time as the fact that they are musicians too. So, you know, we're trying all the time to do explorations like that and people love it. It's allowed us to remain connected, you know, both to our audiences, but also to sponsors and donors and everybody else. But the other dimension that's so important is normally if people are coming to concerts at Carnegie Hall, it's the people who can get into the hall. The thing about all the virtual work we're doing now is it's available around the world. So, you know, it's really expanding audiences in that way. And we've also pivoted all our education work to online. So where we were reaching 800,000 people every year, and most of them kids, we're now reaching huge numbers, I mean, possibly more through our digital offerings. And, and the lens we're looking at for everything we're doing digitally and virtually is that it should be something that can be complementary to what we do when we come back into the hall, uh, you know, which hopefully will be this coming October. So I think we will be a far, far better organization once this is over, because, you know, the demands of a crisis do create innovation. And I think all the things we've done in terms of digital are probably things that would have taken us five, you know, perhaps up to five years to do in normal circumstances. But because of the situation, they've happened now very, very quickly in months, you know, or perhaps up to a year. And it means that we'll be reaching people in so many different ways that we never reached them before once we're back again. So mm -hmm. I think it's gonna be very exciting actually to see what the combined value of all these things is you know hopefully yes. come October yes and as you say whether a hybrid model is actually even more beneficial going forward because you can reach a greater number of um, individuals and have such a greater span than you would otherwise do you know when you're just having people coming into the halls that's really interesting I think um, it'll, it'll unquestionably be better um, because you know neither takes away from the other they're complementary, they'll enhance each other, they'll expand audiences. So I think in every way, um, it'll be a positive. And, and I wanted to pick up on uh, your point around George Floyd's killing, and actually it relates to diversity and creating more inclusive audiences. I think that's something that we're all working through, how we can make our organisations more uh, diverse and inclusive. And just wanted to ask a little bit more about how you're bringing that diversity into the work of Carnegie Hall. You've obviously already talked about being able to reach new audiences, um, but I think there's always a there's a challenge when people don't instantly think a classical music audience is necessarily the most diverse. How do we how do we break that mold and how do we bring new, younger, more diverse audiences to the work of Carnegie Hall? Well, it's something we've been working on for years and years. It's not particular to the last year and, and all the traumas of the last year. So for instance, these big festivals we do, um, by the end of next season, we'll have done 
15 festivals, of which six will have related to African-American themes. Um, so, you know, quite out of proportion in terms of the number of people, um, you know, African-Americans in this country. But because we feel this is such a fundamental challenge for America, and it's a challenge that America still has to meet and still has to solve, um, you know, we feel we have to put it at the center of our programming and, and how we think. So, I mean, of course, we do a lot of um, concerts which are not part of festivals as well. And we explore, again, I mean, a lot of forms of music um, right across the spectrum. I mean, not just African-American, um, but Latinx and so on. I mean, there's, you know, there's great variety in what we do, although we are fundamentally built as a classical music concert hall. Um, so, I mean, there still is a majority, significant majority of our work um, that is classical music. But, you know, we're looking at every side of this, which is composers, it's looking at staff, it's looking at trustees. I mean, every aspect of Carnegie Hall, we have to have a lens on diversity, equity, and inclusion. It's got to be a central part of how we think about everything. And so, I mean, I think like everybody, it has, even though it's something we'd worked on for so many years, it's still, this has accelerated the urgency without a question. Because, it, you know, America has to solve this this time. I mean, it's unbelievable. It's 400 years since the start of slavery. And, the, you know, really the, the consequences of all of that still lie at the center of this society. And it has to be solved. No, absolutely. Completely agree with that. Um, I wanted to uh, just briefly talk about your professional career and people who supported you, particularly mentors, which is something that we're uh, very keen on uh, here at the consulate. Could you speak briefly about an important mentor or a series of mentors in your life and what role they played in supporting you and getting to where you are today? Well, ironically, I've had very little in that sense. Um, you know, I was incredibly shy at school. Um, I was incredibly shy even in my early days in the profession. And I just used to read voraciously. And I would say literature has been my mentor, um, you know, for, for a large part of my life. And, you know, I love reading biographies. I love reading about people. And I've learned a vast amount about, you know, about people and understanding people and management and things just by reading. Uh, I mean, I do talk a lot to people who are peers. You know, we exchange ideas. So, I mean, you can learn a, a lot, you know, both from peers and from your own staff. Um, you know, it's really important that one can, you know, really hear what people are saying and what they're looking for and what they need. Um, so, you know, but I'd, I'd say in my lifetime, by far the biggest thing in terms of mentorship has been literature. My mother's a professional writer, so she'll be very pleased with that, uh, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> that answer. <laughs> Good. Um, and uh, just for following on from that, Briefly, any advice to younger listeners who might aspire to follow in your footsteps, but don't quite know how? Well, I don't think anybody wants to follow in anybody's footsteps. I mean, the most important thing is you look to yourself. What are the things you care about, the things you love, the things you feel passionate about, the things that excite you? You know, it's no good trying to plan a career. I mean, one of the things, you know, when people come to me for career advice, if they come and they've got a plan of what they think their life is going to be, I think they've made a terrible mistake. Because if you, after all, the biggest lesson of my life is that I'm doing what I didn't want to do. 
and loving it more than anything I could possibly have loved uh, in terms of a career. So in other words, you've got to keep an open mind. You've got to throw yourself 100% into everything. And in a way, your particular talents will define your pathway. And I genuinely think, you know, most talented people have many, many talents. And they don't know which are the ones early on in their life. They almost certainly don't know which are the ones that are going to define their career. But it's actually their own talent that will define their career or talents. And, you know, that's what you've got to look at. And it's it's doing things for other people. It's what are the things that change the world? Because, uh, I mean, that's what drives us at Carnegie Hall. It's how does one use this extraordinary institution to change the world around us? And I think if everybody thinks about how do I use my talent to affect other people's lives and enhance other people's lives, that's the most important thing. And I mean, I learned a lesson again, totally by default, uh, you know, not planned at all. But when you're a music student, you tend to think only of yourself most of the time. You know, you're trying to be the best cellist, you're trying to win the prizes, you're trying to do all of that. And you think these are the most important things. Then you want to get into either be a soloist or get into the best orchestra or whatever. So it's always me, me, me. And I didn't realize that the moment I became a manager, my entire way of thinking about life had changed because suddenly I was in a role where running an institution, it becomes all about how do you affect other people's lives? And so it meant I made a mental switch without realizing it, which was to somebody whose life now is all about how do we use these great institutions to change lives? Now, most music students do not think that way. I didn't, most of the people I knew didn't. I mean, some do, some are actually quite visionary and will be thinking about how can I use my music to change lives. Mm -hmm. But in general terms, they're thinking about themselves. And when you yourself are the focus of your ambition, you're never gonna be very interesting. And mm -hmm. what you do is, you know, is gonna tend not to be very interesting. It's actually what you contribute to life and to other people's lives that matters. It's really, really powerful advice. Um, thank you. And speaking of talents and achievements, Clive, you were knighted as Sir Clive, the first ever orchestra manager to um, achieve that recognition. What, what does that what does that mean for you? Well, I was totally staggered, of course, because you never know that it's coming. Um, you know, people put together letters, proposals and so on. Um, you know, that are sent off, I think, to the Prime Minister's office. And, you know, but I knew nothing about that. I, I had no idea that anybody was proposing me and it would have occurred to me that I was worthy of it either. So, I mean, I was totally astounded when this letter arrived from the palace and on it, it says, um, you know, Her Majesty the Queen is minded to offer you a knighthood. Uh, and, you know, within it, it also says, if you make this public, it may not happen. And so, you know, I just filled it in, you know, making sure nobody was watching and sign, you know, ticked the box um, for yes um, <laughs> and, and sent it off. And then I suddenly realized I, I hadn't taken a copy and I couldn't remember, did I tick the right box? Oh, <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> you know, so I didn't know until the New Year's honors mm -hmm. were announced, um, you, you know, whether I'd actually completely messed it up and ticked the wrong box until <laughs> <laughs> so I'd never hear again. Um, so, so I mean, luckily I did tick the right box. And I mean, look, I, I think the reason it meant a huge amount to me was not about me. 
It was about the fact that what we'd done at the LSO in terms of creating a massive education program, all the different things we'd done, creating our own record label, the, the fact that all of this mattered enough, um, you know, that, that actually it was recognition, I thought, for the orchestra rather than for me, for all that we'd done. And, and I it was an incredible feeling to know that what we had done had actually merited this recognition. And, you know, but it was very much, I mean, everything's always about teams and it, nobody achieves anything on their own. It, and it was a team effort. So, I mean, that was thrilling. I mean, the thing that was just funny was when you actually go to be knighted, you're taken off into a separate room because um, there's people with OBs, CBs, everything. Um, but the people who are gonna be knighted go into a separate room and actually have to practice kneeling because um, there's a little stool to kneel on. And apparently people used to fall off it. Um, so, so they actually have to make sure that when you kneel, you don't fall off. And, and so, you know, that, it was just hilarious. <laughs> you didn't fall off. And I didn't fall off. I managed not to fall off. <laughs> so, but, but look, of course it's thrilling. And it was, I think it really was important for the orchestra as a recognition of its words. Mm. Oh, it was much deserved. Clive Gillinson, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for being on Brits in the Big Apple. Uh, we are keeping everything crossed for Carnegie Hall to open its doors again uh, later in October. And we very much look forward to uh, following your efforts. So thank you very much for joining us today. Well, Hannah, thank you so much. I mean, it was wonderful to talk to you. And thank you for giving me the chance to talk about the things I care about. You're listening to Brits in the Big Apple, brought to you by the British Consulate in New York. If you'd like to hear more about the work of the British Consulate, please follow us on Twitter or Instagram at UK in New York. Thank you for listening.